0: Steady Hour Chronicles is a Mayan Chronicles production. Oh my god, but yeah,
1: I was walking back and forth for those last two minutes. I am oh, bonkers. Absolutely bonkers game of football. We should talk about it. We should do this. I'm excited to talk about it with you. I don't want to do it before we start recording. Okay.
0: Hello and welcome to the 2022 Steady Hour Chronicles podcast with me, Mina Rizuki, and of course, Nikki Bandini. Hi, Nikki. Hi. I can't believe it, Mina. It's 2022. What happened? What happened? How did we get here? I I just feel like it was only three days ago that it was 2020 and we had to go home and work from home. And all of a sudden, it's two years later. And we're still still at home. But I saw you in person, Mina.
1: I actually... Guys, like some of you may already know this, if you're listening, you might have seen us, but uh, for the first time since the pandemic, Mina and I actually got to go to a studio and make a show together. We were on Sky Sports News in the UK and uh, it was so exciting to see you in person. It was, you it hugging. really was.
0: Oh. Because for so many years, Nikki and I would see each other at, like once a week to do our show and the predecessor of this podcast. And then all of a sudden, obviously, once the pandemic happened, I mean, we were being sent out to Italy together. We were going to uh, studios together. So we were always in each other's company. And then all of a sudden, pandemic hits and we didn't see each other for several, well, like two years, you know, um, since it started really much. And so it was really, really great to do that. Um, How was your Christmas and New Year? I think everyone knows I got COVID because my voice still Doesn't sound like it's back to normal, but I am back to normal. How was your Christmas in New Year? Christmas in New Year was good.
1: I ate my Panettone. Uh, my mum came to visit. <laughs> <laughs> my mum came to visit and it was just the two of us, actually. We had like the, the lowest of low-key Christmases because my brother and his family were with um, his in-laws in Malta. I've just moved house. I think I talked about that on the, on the podcast a few times. I've just moved into my own flat. My mum hasn't been able to spend much time down here, what with everything that's been going on. So she came down, and we had uh, three days of just hanging out, me and mum, which we haven't done in forever. So it was a super, super chill that Christmas. Um, and so those of you who see things on YouTube, asleep on this sofa right behind me by about six pm, <laughs> having had our lunch. So it was, it was a really, really good day. How about you, Mina? Was there any bright points in amongst the the COVID frustration? <laughs>
0: COVID. Um, Covid. I was COVID. isolating, <laughs> and then at about four PM, um, my mother shows up. And she just flings the door wide open. <laughs> my mother has such a little disregard for like any notion of privacy in life <laughs> um, or isolation. She's got my dad running behind her as usual. <laughs> yeah, he's always behind her, <laughs> just <laughs> being like, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" And she's like, "I'm sorry. I don't care if you have Covid. I don't care if you spread it to all of us. I don't care if we die." We're gonna spend today together, yeah. And I was like, "Get away from me!" Because I'm like screaming. Because obviously they're much older. Mm -hmm. My dad, for example, is eighty-four years old. My God. And, and my mom's early seventies. There's a huge age gap because my dad's that kind of guy. And, um, and so, and and so they were like, "No, we don't care. We just want to spend it with you. And like, you, you have to be with the family, and nobody cares." Yeah. And I was like, I care. Like, what about what I want? And like I care about you. Like, I you know, I want you guys here and I don't want yeah. you to suffer. And they're like, come out and stop it. And don't be this idiot. This is what families do. <laughs> Either way, um, they didn't actually let me self-isolate for very long. And they eventually caught it from me. And right. for them, it genuinely was like about a 40 hour bug. Um, meanwhile, their youngest daughter, um, which is me, was like, dying until well after new year's day so i don't you know i'm glad thankfully that they overcame it very quickly i think my dad sneezed once um and he kept saying you see this is why i had the booster because i didn't have the booster because i caught covid but yeah that was what it was either way i'm finally back to action i did enjoy the period because i actually didn't look at my mobile i think once i didn't answer a single email i didn't look at a single call i just it was bliss. That's it was bliss. the first time that I, I like, like really bliss. sat down. Yeah. And just like binge watched and ate. And it was, it was fun. I mean, other than the fact that I was in pain for most of it. But yeah, it was fun. <laughs> I love this about you, <laughs> I Mina. Mean, you always tell everyone here, you're like, oh, I'm the witch of
1: Celia. And it's a lie. You're, you're an optimist. I know you are. You've got this, the, the, the optimist in, inside you. So even <laughs> when you were sick, even when things were difficult, you still had that uh, sunniness to you. One of many reasons that I love working with you, Mina, because uh, you're awesome.
0: Oh, Nikki. You know, I think if people know that we're both Leos and we to <laughs> do a show with Gab, who's also a Leo. And if you are into star science, that's probably why we're always so like loud and agreeing or disagreeing <laughs> and just happy people in general, hopefully. Mm. But um, it's, it's nice to have Sadia back. Are you extra happy today, Mina? Are you extra happy from what happened at this <laughs> yeah, the I weekend? There was a part of me after Napoli that was really broken um, because obviously there was a round of face just on Thursday. Not all of the games were played. We'll discuss that a little bit later. But I was a little bit dismayed at that performance. And there was a part of me that was like, you know what? I'm just going to come to terms with life. And this is what Juventus are. And I have to just be okay with it, you know? And there is a part of me sometimes that I told you, I go in and out with football. There's a, You know, I just sort of become a journalist and, and stop being a fan and then that game happened against Roma and up until the 70th minute I was like what a stupid team, but Juventus are just ridiculous <laughs> like they are just, they're just ridiculous
1: Deciglio, con l'esterno per Morata, dentro il e pallone attenzione to McKennie verso De Sciglio. De Sciglio può calciare, De Deciglio! De, Sciglio! De Sciglio! siamo avanti noi 4-3, ha
0: segnato Mattia De Sciglio! è la paria pallone!
1: Pellegrini parte il tiro di Pellegrini Pellegrini ancora fuori! La Dice di no! Stavolta Lorenzo Pellegrini! Incredibile!
0: And then bam! Like everything that I had stopped feeling, I started to feel all over again. And it was just it it was crazy. I mean, I was rocking back and forth in the final minutes going, please hold on, please hold on, please hold on, please hold on you know. It was, I was impressed with players I never thought I'd be impressed with. I was disappointed with players I never thought I'd be disappointed with. I was shouting at Mourinho, even though the, oh, I was happy that he was losing, you know. But I had so much in my head that was just running, thinking, what's happened to Roma? Like, wow, from Juve, should Allegri always be on the sidelines? Is this Landucci or Allegri? <laughs> you know? So a bunch of um, things. But actually, I, I just thought about something, Nikki, before anything, guys, I want you to all know that we have started a Patreon for Chronicles 2 4 C to support us on an ongoing basis. And that's patreon.com forward slash Chronicles. I should have probably said that before. Sorry, that's my fault. I, I got you talking about the game. I pushed you onto it before you
1: were, before you were ready. <laughs> no. It's my fault.
0: Also, I was just so excited. So, and the mention of Juventus got me talking all again. It's,
1: it's hard not to be excited about this game. Like, I'm not, um, a Juventus fan. I'm not a Roma fan, but this game was just madness. Like, I, I don't think it's the game that you would point to and, and sort of want to be like, Hey, like, here's the case for how sort of strong a league Serie it A is. It's not the one which you point to and say, this is where the best teams play. Cause frankly, there was a lot of bad football in there as well, but. It was just edge of your seat drama and madness in a way that is hard to even put into words. Like I was, I've written a, a column about it for the Guardian as, as always. I, I write a, a, a column for the Guardian on Mondays. Um, but I, I, I was sort of looking at the papers this morning first and I was reading, I think it was Corriere de la Sport was saying, um, uh, oh, you know, was this, uh, a remontada? Was this a, a comeback or was this a, a collapse? And I was thinking, that's those, a good question. But, but the, what um, is it? And we can ask it, but I, those words for me don't cover it, right? Because it's more than that. It's not a collapse or a comeback. It's a melodrama. It's a, a saga. This was <laughs> an epic drama of football. It was ridiculousness. You had uh, a Greek tragedy. <laughs> well, you had so many elements to this, meaning. There's so many things that we can sort of talk about with this game. There's, you know, take a step sort of back to the sort of furthest out zoom lens that you've got. And you think to yourself, 4 3 between an Allegri team and a Mourinho team. There's already a story there, right? Like, that's not what you expect for those two managers, those two teams. Then you look at the fact that Roma were 1 0 up and then 3 1 up, and you think, blimey, there's a story there. Then you look at the fact that three goals scored by Juventus in seven minutes, which, as our producer Simon pointed out, just before he came on, that's about three minutes or more of VAR talk in that time. So it's about four minutes of actual football. Then you look at the fact that you've got Lorenzo Pellegrini scoring an amazing free kick with Francesco Totti in the stand and you've got this moment of captain to captain. Then you look at the fact that you've got Pellegrini later missing the penalty that could save the game with a Roma goalkeeper, former Roma goalkeeper, Wojciech Szczesny in goal. Then you look at the fact there's a sending off. You look at the the genuinely like tragic part of the game, which is Federico Chiesa suffering a a crucial ligament. There's so many stories in this one game of football that it's, it's, it's unreal. Like, I don't even know how you, you try to explain what happened in 90 minutes at the Sergio Olimpico.
0: You see, people can talk to me about all the different leagues in the world. Oh, this is the best football. Oh, the- no, there is nothing more entertaining. Like, frankly speaking, there's just nothing more entertaining than Serie a. Because you know what's impossible is I, I do a betting show sometimes and there's if there's one thing that you know is that Juventus rarely score more than a goal. Yeah. Right. And so you yes. just have like yeah, you have like these things that you know for sure. And then the rest of it is so unpredictable. And there is so much unpredictability like Talianitana winning yeah, against <laughs> Verona. And you're thinking, wait, what? Yeah. Like, yeah. Talia is bonkers. But to see seven games in a match like you said between Mourinho and Allegri to see Juventus scoring that many goals and just really going for it to see that kind of collapse from a team that had so much control to see like De Chilio being the match winner like De Chilio. and and it just it was a bonkers really a bonkers match and I I don't know I mean there is I was watching this obviously as a Juventus fan up until the 70th minute and I was like wow we really have fallen I mean like Juventus just is It's just a team that just doesn't know how to start again. I mean, when it falls, it falls and there's nothing there. And and obviously there's a part of me that's like, come on, Dybala, do something, not just keep falling, like do something. You know, I'm hoping that he's going to like somehow, you know, reignite the fire. And I don't, shouldn't really be all on him, you know. And you look at Juventus and you think there's no Kayser now because he's been taken off with an injury. Obviously, we'll talk about that later, but I'm more worried about Italy without Chiesa than I am, even though Juventus is my team. But what a huge loss he is to both his club and his country. Like that is, it is tragic beyond tragic that he has been diagnosed with a cruciate ligament injury. And there's something that happens between Roma and Juventus because we lost Zaniolo to a cruciate ligament injury um, in a match between these two teams. We lost Meridemeral if you remember as well. And now it's Chiesa. I feel like every time these two teams take each other on something bad really happens on an injury perspective. And now I'm scared, you know, yeah. But my goodness, like, you know, all of the things that you ever thought about, like, you know, cliches or or this is what you can depend on. On This is there's nothing there. I mean, Kelly Eddie can win, <laughs> which is just beyond me, frankly speaking. Celia Netana managed to win and, and Juventus scored four goals. So if there's anything that makes your mind blow up, this is Serie A. It's the unpredictability of Serie A and it's just fantastic.
1: Yeah, I think mean, you couldn't have asked for a more dramatic sort of return from, um, from the winter break than this. I mean, the two rounds in, in a few days, I think it's a little bit mad. They scheduled things like that, but what a round of, what, what a double round as well. And and to get into let's get into like I guess the the the, yeah. the, the, the substance. Of this. like you know I think that even in the space of this ninety minutes, like I could tell you like two whole self-contained stories about Jose Mourinho, right? Because so Roma had I thought a hugely disappointing performance against Milan on, on Thursday. So Milan, who are missing Frank Kessier and Binasse, they're missing three quarters of their starting defence. They've been decimated by uh, COVID and the Cup of Nations and some injuries on top of that. And you think this is a real chance for, for Roma. And Roma were not really ever in that game, I think, even though they did at one point bring it back to 2-1. And then um, three days later, they're playing against Juventus. Now this is a big game, right? Juventus are three points outside the, the Champions League places, but Roma are within a striking range. So if they win, they could level with Juventus. And if I'd been asked beforehand even though I haven't been hugely impressed with Juventus I would have said yeah Juventus will win that game I, I don't believe in this Roma at all really uh, yeah I really would have done because I was so unimpressed with, with Roma against Milan Um Mourinho okay. out of nowhere pulls this switcheroo from the three-man defence to the four-man defence mirrors Juventus goes to a 4-2-3-1 uh, Landucci who, said, who was on the bench for Juventus this game because um, Allegri was serving a actually admitted in his press conference, we didn't see that coming. We prepared for a three-man defense. They they came at this with this four-man defense. It was different. And like individually, some of the changes that Mourinho made, the players didn't actually work out that great. Like he threw Maitland-Niles straight into the team who'd arrived from Arsenal alone like two days before. He put Cristante back into the midfield. And then both of those players are at fault on on Juventus' first goal, right? Like Maitland-Niles gets um, beaten by Chiesa. And Cristante is just ball-watching. He should be tracking uh, DiBala, who ends up having all the time in the world to do a DiBala type of goal. But despite that, tactically, I felt like Mourinho won this for like 60, 70 minutes. I felt like Roma were in control of the game. I thought that Cristante and Beratu did, in fact, by adding an extra sort of uh, element into the midfield, they did have quite a lot of control in the middle of the park. They did keep the ball away from Ben Tanker and Locatelli when that was the partnership for Juventus. I thought Mourinho had, had actually reminded us, oh yeah, like he can do this. He can, he can change his tactics. He can get things right. And then conversely, when the game starts getting away from them, which comes to that Murata substitution, which you know, we can also go in a minute, but like, there was, there was nothing. There was no answer. And then at the end of the game, you have Mourinho being what for me. And look, I know whenever we criticize Mourinho, someone wants to come at us and fine, like disagree with me guys, but, um, just do it respectfully and it's okay. But I, I, I really felt like, uh, his post match comments, there was a bit where he said, Oh, you know, it's diff- it's really hurting my heart because I'm not used to working with a club of this profile. And. This is just our level and I want the players to follow me and, and come up to my level rather than dragging me down to their level. Basically, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, oh how is God. that? How is that the message to send to your players? You're dragging me down. Like, you've got to be as great as I am. You, your results aren't great. You've lost nine games. Like, I, I, yeah, I, I, I think we saw some great Mourinho in this game. And then for me afterwards, some terrible Mourinho.
0: So here's the thing. I mean, Milan for me was such a disappointment like you know we're talking about Milan side that's really been struggling to to win matches that haven't really been showing the best of themselves towards the end of 2021 you know they always start off beautifully and then at some point the wheels start to come off and you look and they don't have Tomori, they don't have Kaguya they're playing with Gabby at the back they're playing with Kalulu as a centre-back there's no Calabria there's I mean, there were so many people missing Vanessa, Kesia, whoever you like, like you mentioned Giroud up top, not Ibrahimovic in initially, and it was like Roma just got it so wrong, and you just felt like Verity was just on his own trying to to overcome like so much you know overwhelming play by Milan that had such a clear tactical identity and knew at every stage of the match what to do. I mean, I do I did think that they sort of went into safe mode a little bit too early in the second half. But this was an example of Mourinho once again, and I think he showed this at United, and I think he showed this at Tottenham, not quite understanding how to achieve balance in his midfield because that Mm. midfield was so overrun. And it was very, very disappointing that he only chose to bring on Cristante towards the end and sort of stem the flow and stop the madness. Mm. And it's too late by then, Right. Then you feel like, okay, he got it right against Juventus. I mean, this is, this is a very bad Juventus, let's be honest, yeah? yeah. But it's still Juventus. And I thought, you know what? You, you got it right. You played with lots of energy. You focused on set plays. You, you hyped up the pressure as much as possible, you know. And like you said, you changed to a four-man defense, and it's something that they hadn't prepared, you know. And yet, the mastery, like, when you look at a coach, it's not somebody who gets it right in the beginning. It's somebody who understands how to change it when the things go start going wrong. And that is something that, for example, Allegri and Pioli are so good at changing when, you know, when, and spotting things and, and adapting. Spalletti is very good at that. But you just know straight away that Mourinho always just starts bringing on forwards. Like as automatically, you know, if you're losing, let me just change the forward line and maybe I'll get a goal. It's not like he understands what the problem is here. It was great that you padded out your midfield, but the worst thing you could have done at that moment of time was to score a third goal against Juventus. And it was almost like that allowed them to finally unbutton that damn risk-averse button that they've got on them and think to themselves, you know what? Forget Morata for a second. We're going to put Locatelli next to Arthur and just try to regain control of our midfield. We're going to try to just push up the center of gravity, bring on a, a player like Morata, who's defense from the front, who presses and actually runs towards the ball and wants to partake in final third action, something that Moise Ken doesn't do so well. Yeah. Because he is more of a, I guess, a classic reference point. And then that just changed everything. And so when you allow Juventus to take a risk, and for me, I feel like it's detrimental that you have to wait till you're 3-1 down before you finally start bringing on the right players yeah mm. because it should always and always have been Locatelli and Arthur next to each other I know there have been injuries and Arthur hasn't always have been available but those two make the difference as soon as I just don't ever see Rabiot and Benton the better because this midfield should be Weston McKenney and it should be the other two because it's greater control it's a, a player that can penetrate on off the ball in McKenney, and it just for me, it just works. And yes, it doesn't give you as much defensive solidity, but you needed to score goals at that point, and that's what Juventus did. They rolled the dice, and you know what? They came up trumps. But there was so much to admire about Juventus's performance because I thought De Shilio, he made a mistake, but he really, really came back from that mistake with Mkhitaryan, and 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 I thought was superb. I thought Arthur was superb. I thought the substitutions were just fantastic. The attitude. The understanding that they were in the olympico and they were down was, was terrible. But I refuse to read Gazette and Corriere de Sport anymore when it comes to Juventus match because I just feel like they are way too harsh. But I did decide to read it now because I thought maybe they might be nice to Juve. They weren't. But one <laughs> thing that I did read, and I'm actually going to read to you guys because I thought this was fantastic and it was in Gazette, I have to say that. It said, ninth defeat in 21 games. Each time he blames a new culprit, the special ones list since the beginning of the year. He's blamed the referees, the squad, the depth, inexperience, character fragility, transfer market, but never himself. The second highest paid coach in Serie a, he's never looked to the fact that he's at fault. I mean, coming into Milan and, you know, losing that match, he's eight points off where Fonseca was last season. This is despite how many players he's bought in, yeah? He's eight points off where Fonseca was last season. If you look at the goals that they've created, last year they were fifth when it came to op- goals scored from open play. Only four teams scored more from open play than Roma. This year, they're tenth. Verona, Juventus, they've scored more from open play. What I see from Roma to me right now is a team that's very good in set pieces, very organized in one particular way, but absolutely unable to adapt to the circumstances, to change, to move the, the, the midfield around. Don't bring on Mayoral and all of these players. And you know, I mean, I love Mayoral, don't get me wrong, but it's not about changing your forward line. Maybe what you needed is to believe more in your midfield, to try to reclaim control, add a filter there, that's your issue, but he never looks to change his midfield. Where's Eduardo Bove that he spoke everyone spoke so highly of? Who's perfect off the ball? Why is Villar in his perfect rotation and circulation of the ball? I know he doesn't have the physicality, but you know what? He was tremendous against Juventus when they played in February. They lost that match, but he was tremendous. And I just feel like a lot of the time, these great players are being excluded for the fact that, oh well Shmurudov didn't do his what he's supposed to do. You bring him on for 10 minutes in a game. What do you want the guy to do? Like he has no continuity and you keep just changing forwards. That's not the way to, to arrange your team to come back in the squad that you let Juventus score four goals. I mean, I don't know what's worse, Bodo glimpsed all this. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, <laughs> it's, it's extraordinary. On that point, I think Juventus had scored 28 goals in their first 20 games. So, you know, it's not even one yeah. half-doors game. Um they were the the lowest scoring team in the top half of the table. Uh, there was a a, a stat that I, that I thought was really damning as well about uh, Roma's start to the season, which is that this is the first time since 1988 89 that they've lost at home in the same season uh, to Juventus to and both the Milan clubs. So that's quite a sort of a uh, big comment. I know that they, I know that they have had sort of not a great time against the bigger clubs in general recently. But it's a strange one for me, Mina, because honestly, at, at sort of 69 minutes, I guess, before that first goal went in, I probably would have said it's not perfect, but it's one of the best performances I've seen under them, under Mourinho. And then the collapse was just so total in that last bit. Um, that it's, it's, um, it's extraordinary. And I, and I do think, I know you sort of, uh, mentioned him, but I, I do want to just highlight fully that Morata... uh, what is it? One swallow doesn't make a uh, spring. One great performance doesn't suddenly uh, fix everything that wasn't working for him. But Murata was very much at the centre of all three goals that the Juventus scored. He set up the first one. It was his shot that gets blocked before Kolarov scores for the second one, and it was him who was uh, swabbing passes with McKenney before McKenney chipped ball in for the third one. So Murata was transformative in this game, and and I think. Yeah. While Juventus would prefer to and really in the long run need to still uh, upgrade their attack, he looks the better option than Moise can to me uh, for that number nine spot. Maybe it makes more sense to do it like this, though, and have him coming off the bench. I don't know. I think that attack is still a problem in general. Um, you know, the, the reason Dibala, I love that Dibala goal because that Dibala goal puts me in mind of the old, it's the old. Um, Paul Pogba described him as uh, I can't remember the buttons anymore because I'm not actually like a PlayStation player, but I remember Pogba called them. I think he called them like oh, a, yeah. a square R two um, player or something because that's the buttons that you need to do to hit like a curling shot. And um and that was that was that shot. Like before, we all talked about Lorenzo Insigne and his tirage. That was like the the trademark de DiBala thing, the, the the curling shot, and that one really beautiful to look at. It's it's one of those shots you watch, and it's like, it's going yards outside the post and it comes back. The only sort of thing that needs to be qualified with is it's astonishing how much time Roma gave him that one. And it is Cristante who lost him. Cristante should have been tracking him and just completely, um, completely lost him. But look, it's, it's a good win for Juventus. And it's, I think, um, especially a good win, um, when, You've got Allegri not on the sideline, Landucci, his replacement said it, it took five or six years of his life. So he doesn't want to, doesn't want to do it again. <laughs> but, um, you know, if he was responsible for those substitutions, uh, always a bit sort of unclear when you've got a manager in the site, the, in the in the stands and they're probably trying to get messages through some way somehow. Um, but if Landucci ultimately was responsible for those changes, look, hats off because he made the right ones.
0: I just want to, just because you brought up Morata and I, and I don't, I I want to thank you for it. Um, mm. I'm a huge, huge fan of Morata. I have been for absolutely ages and people don't understand why. And I think that Morata is very successful if he's played in a certain way and he can never be your reference point. He doesn't like to be your reference point. And he doesn't want to be your reference point and he doesn't want to work alongside creative players. He wants to be next to the reference point. You bring him on a player like Carlos Tevez or Ronaldo and he shines because he likes to be the man in between because that's what he wants to do. He's a movement guy. He wants to partake in the action. He wants to go around and, and work and create space and, and bully and, and press and and be the guy that delivers an assist. He Actually, I feel like he enjoys that more than when he actually scores a goal. Here's the thing that I love about him. He always makes the right technical choice when he's on the ball. He makes the right choice, but he makes it based on textbooks. It's almost like he lacks the instinct, and that's where the problem is, is that he goes a lot by what he's been taught rather than what he thinks might just be the right idea, you know? But alongside Jao Felix, alongside Dybala, I don't see the best of him. But when he's allowed to move a lot and the center of gravity is higher, then I think Morata shines, which is why he's shown a lot in Real Madrid, and I think why he's shown... More fit for Juventus when there was the likes of obviously Vidal and, and Pogba and that type of thing and Pianic and Kadiro, whoever you want to say. But when having Arthur, Ar- Artur and Locatelli and Locatelli being able to act as that reference point and Moradin can pull away and deliver an assist, that's where he's his best at. And I, I, I just wish if they just bought a ref- if they just bought one more striker, and sort of get rid of all the excess that there is. I think Marati, you would really see the best out of him. But along, making him your reference point or working alongside Moise Ken, it's not working because I don't know. I don't know about King because he seemed to be very good against PSG. But for Juventus, he just doesn't seem up to the level. And another thing, I much prefer you over Alexandro or I want. <laughs> I, I stand for just no longer, I feel like, doesn't really for Juventus. And if it's Ticilio and Pellegrini or Cuadrado and Ticilio, I'm happy with that going forward.
1: Yeah, I, I don't want to get into a big discussion on it necessarily, because I don't have much more to say than just this broad point. But Alexandra is one of the most extraordinary cases for me of a player who I think a couple of years ago I thought was really one of the top, top players in his position and and now is... I don't know what's happened to him. He's a he's a shadow. Um, I I think he's he's been a real problem for Juventus, honestly, lately.
0: Well, I mean, the good news for Roma is they've got some fairly easier fixtures coming up, so hopefully they can sort of build their momentum again and maybe maybe do something special. Juventus obviously have Inter next, um, and they don't have Federico Chiesa now for the rest of the season. Super Yes, it is the Super Coppa. Mm. It is indeed, and it's a title that. Well, certainly they will do. It is Inter after all. Um, I think Keyes is a huge point and that's going to be really difficult for, frankly, for Juventus to make top four without that kind of player. I mean, without Ronaldo, without Keys, and with Dybala probably getting injured time now, it's going to be really scary going forward. But it is what it is. And hopefully Mancini will find a way of still getting to the World Cup without this exciting player. Oh,
1: I'm so worried and about it.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really, really worried about it too um, because it's going to be detrimental to like my life if they don't make the World Cup, frankly. Um, but yes, I guess uh, we have many more games to go through next. So obviously the COVID situation is getting worse around Europe and um, we've seen lots of games postponed uh, not taking place in the Premier League. And it happened in Serie A because around 90 players, which is around 16 percent of Serie A, had contracted COVID and it became a problem because certain local health authorities, which are referred to as ASLs in Italy, were asking their particular teams to quarantine or certain players to quarantine or not allowing them to go into a match an example of this is Bologna's uh, game against Inter that got abandoned. Um, Bologna were not allowed to show up, basically from their local health authority, and Inter had already travelled up and did the whole waiting for the game, you know, warming up, and the match didn't go ahead. But Inter did have uh, obviously so a few games were abandoned, including Torino's one, Venezia against Salernitana, and several others, but. There's a COVID protocol now put into place. They are taking um, and talking to local health authorities and making them stop telling their teams to not travel or ordering them into quarantine. And so far, they're winning their appeals. And that is why all the matches took place on Sunday. And now we have a protocol that says if you have 13 players available and one of them is a goalkeeper, then the match must go ahead which was obviously terrible news for the likes of Udinese who had 12 of their players unavailable due due to COVID. But this is the situation. We have games to play and they don't want any more postponements. Anything you'd like to add, Nikki?
1: Yeah, I think the issue is just that that really sort of needed addressing um, after the first round of games, because it really was chaotic, um, was because of the way Italian sort of governance is set up, because the way these health bodies are set up, you just had no consistency across the whole country in terms of how things were being applied. And I think actually the best example of this was that Napoli had actually some sort of contradicting advice from two separate health boards, because they had the the ASL, the the, the health body for central Naples said, yeah, you're good to travel. They were in conversation with them all the way up to their... their they're leaving time before they left to go and play against Juventus in Turin. And then as they're finally getting ready to go, they have a second, completely separate, completely independent of one another, um, health body, the ASL for Section 2 of Naples, um, which is... um Because it's a big city, they have several. Exactly, and they're sectioned and they're just literally numbered 1, 2, uh, 3 and so on. And, and the number 2 ASL, which is where some of their players live, said, um, well, under our application of these rules that we've been given by the government. Um these players who have had close contact with the COVID uh, with the COVID case, not some not players who contracted COVID, um, but it was uh Zelinsky and the Bocca and one other who I'm forgetting. Brahmani. Brahmani. That's right. Um they 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 should all um quarantine. And this is with the team already on its way to Turin. So they're being told that those three players have to uh quarantine in the hotel. And then there was this, oh, well, they have to, maybe they can, they can play, but they're going to have to wear a mask. And at some point, Ben Napoli clearly made a decision in consultation with their lawyers and just said, we're just going to play. And if we get a fine or if we get some sort of action, we'll, we'll, we'll cross the bridge when we come to it. And, you know, I, I very much understand that for the club's position. The club would have been down to, if all of those players didn't play, they would have been down to only 10 outfield players uh, from their first team squad. So it would have been really thin, but, um. But also, uh, I think when you look back and, and see what happened last season, when of course it was also N- uh, Napoli going to Juventus and there was that whole saga about Napoli were told by their ASL, which was the one again for central Naples, not to travel. And then there was a big controversy about that. And the game ended up getting initially awarded and overturned on appeal. You just see the web of complicated situations that things that teams are getting into. And, you know, you mentioned the Inter Bologna game. It's a fascinating example because well, we'd had these games before. It was the first one I could think of where it was the away team got there and the home team didn't. Yeah, And, you know, you had on that same weekend, uh, teams with like 10 COVID cases, no weekend, same Thursday, like teams, with like 10 COVID cases still going ahead and playing uh, and others that weren't. And
0: Like Hellas Verona, for example.
1: Yeah, exactly. And they still had to play their match. And they still got through it, actually. Um yeah, but, but the, the, there needed to be some sort of, uh, of of central control and that's what, you know, study out with talking to the, the government about and, and hopefully from here it will at least be more consistent because I think that's always the, the most complicated thing is when you just have different rules being applied by different um, bodies that are competing levels of authority and, and competency and, and it was just leading to a really, really chaotic start to the year.
0: But I, I just want to, Like I got very angry at the time when the ruling came out, and Napoli managed to overturn. You know, when they went to appeal and say, "Well, this is we weren't allowed to travel up to visit Juventus and play the match." And I feel like that precedent that was set has what is the domino that led to all of this madness? Because now, you know, teams could all be ordered by their local health authority. They always had the power to do that, but in doing so, it almost revitalized their control and. And made them feel more authoritative in, in telling their teams not to travel up or not to attend matches. And that precedent that was set caused a lot of chaos. At the time, we should have stuck to the COVID protocol and things should have been made clearer as to what we were allowed to do. And local health authorities should have been part of this whole planning and, and understand what their role is and how much control they do actually have and to exert. And everyone should have been involved in this. But by setting that precedent and allowing Napoli to replay that match when, you know, when they felt better, even though at the time they had less than five cases of Corona, it was annoying to watch. And this is, I feel like, what's caused so many problems. But thankfully, we do have a COVID protocol now and it is in place and this shouldn't happen going forward where we see matches abandoned.
1: I mean, it's Italy, so you never know what's coming next, but. We really never know. Said with love. Said by an Italian with love. I'm allowed to say it because I'm Italian.
0: <laughs> yeah, damn straight. Um, everything said with love. Um, we love the madness. That's why it's the Greek tragedy of rematch. <laughs> but um, let's move on to the game because Inter did finally play a game and it wasn't Bologna, but it was Lazio. Lazio were the only team to have defeated Inter so far this season in Serie A. And Lazio obviously were the team under Simone Zaghi last season caught between different ideologies. Are they a Saudi team? Are they still an Inzaghi team? Who are they? We don't know. Inter, of course, went to champions and a beautiful team and managed to win 2-1. But they suffered a bit, didn't they? They did. Um,
1: I, to me, Inter were, were, were very clearly the better team in this game. I think there was what, what yes. made it into suffering was just that um, After they took the lead through Bastoni, uh, Ciro Immobile scores a goal, which was a very Ciro Immobile goal. It was very opportunistic, and like he's he's good at it. And then they didn't have the lead for for a, a long time. And of course, the longer you don't have the lead against a good team like Lazio, who have a player like Ciro Immobile, who you know can punish you that one time you give him a chance, that that breeds some anxiety. But I I never felt like Inter were anything other than dictating, uh, the game overall. I always felt like Inter were, were again, aside from that simple fact of the scoreline and, and the, the, the potential, the goal scoring potential of, of this Lazio team, I never felt like Inter were not in control of the game personally. Um, I thought it was interesting the way the goals did come, um, with both of them being scored by centre-backs and the second one being set up by a centre-back as well. Just a, brilliant cross I thought from Bastoni. and I, I loved Scrinia's celebration afterwards it was a great uh, the <laughs> it of the bar, wasn't amazing. he celebrated like he really meant it you know like I love it when players yeah. none of the sort of pre-orchestrated pre-planned celebration just letting all of that flow out of you because you're so excited I felt like he was I felt like he was in the moment and um look this uh, certainly, uh, we at eight consecutive wins now, but this was not an occasion to dissuade me from the fact that Inter remain going into the second half of the, t- of the season, very much the, the strong favourites uh, to go on and retain this title.
0: I mean, frankly speaking, I want to win the Champions League now um, just because like I just see them play their football and I think it's a remarkable team. And... Also because uh, any opportunity for me to try to explain that Antonio Conte is, this is such an upgrade for me, to Antonio Conte's team. I think he definitely laid the groundwork on a mentality level because you can see how much inter are a mature side that don't ever get flustered, that never worry or panic into anything. Everything is done with a, with a, with control and measure, A good temperament in the side. Could have a lot to do with the fact that Vidal's not starting games, but it is a a team that is so impressive in the sense that on this occasion, it was their centre-back scoring their goals, assisting, scoring goals, playing forward. You find the forwards partaking in defensive work off the ball. It is a side that is like total football all over. There is nothing that these players can't seem to do. Bastoni is the 16th goal scorer of the season this is the team that is that has kept you know a clean sheet for so many obviously Chiro Immobile is always a guy that you probably can't keep a clean sheet against but up until him they had kept 587 minutes without conceding a goal that is it is a remarkable team and I love the fact like you said that the, the celebration because and despite that, they are not a team that reckons itself. It's a team that celebrates every victory going forward, every moment, every, every moment of happiness. You know, whether it's Dumfries doing something exciting. And at the time, they all celebrated with him to make him feel confident. It's Scriniar and Bastoni on this occasion talking about, oh, should he buy him dinner? There is a genuine happiness within that squad. And, and when Bastoni says we're really having fun, you can see that. And when you have that kind of harmony in the dressing room and on a tactical level it's so unpredictable and exciting to watch, I feel like this team should win the Champions League. Obviously, I don't know. I guess the only other side of it is is I'm genuinely worried about Lazio. I know that they made in to suffer and it's not and they have some great players in there, but I don't know who they are at the moment. I feel like they're really struggling to to show Saddy's football or to try to like because they sometimes revert to who they used to be. And I I don't think they really know who they are. They've conceded 39 goals in 21 games. This is the seventh defeat of the season. Like, I don't get why they're in such a rush to keep, like, you know, to to extend the contract of Sarri. I I just feel like, are we sure that this is the team that he can really work with? How many more players should you bring in? Because they're having cash flow issues. And you can see that's visibly irritating Sadi, because he doesn't have the pay as he wants. Going forward, is this a side you trust? Because I never know what to expect from Lazio.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, talking about cash flow uh, and let's not forget that since we last made this podcast, Mina, Lazio's owner, Claudio oh. Latito, finally had to uh, relinquish control of Salernitana, a situation that should have been <laughs> uh, resolved a long, 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 long time ago. but no doubt uh, feeling aggrieved as he always does, uh, Claudio Letito. Um, Look, Simone Inzaghi is is a very good manager. I think we knew that before he came to Inter, but I think he's really proven himself already this season in a way that uh, he couldn't do at Lazio, right? Just because he'd been at Lazio, he'd built most of his reputation at Lazio. We needed to see him in a different context to know because um, not that it isn't impressive to exceed expectations at one club, which for me he did a lot at Lazio. I think he was well above the 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 expectations there. But you prove yourself that you can do it in a different context, it it raises you up again. And I think that it was in the same way that we thought it was going to be difficult for someone to come in and fill Antonio Conte's shoes. The reality is, it was going to be difficult for someone to come in and fill Simone Inzaghi's shoes at Lazio, right? Like, there's not many managers that yeah. I think would have walked in there and suddenly done a better job than he was doing. Whether or not Sally is doing a good enough job, whether or not he's someone who I have faith that that project is moving in the right direction, yeah, I'm with you. I, I have a lot of reservations. Um, I think there's there's lots of pieces in that team. Right. I struggle to see how things get better and I can imagine how things get worse, right? So Chilo Mobile is brilliant, remains brilliant, has been brilliant for a while. He's still scoring goals. Where does Chilo Mobile go from here though, right? Like there's no way that he can really go up. And over time, it's easy to see how he goes down. Like, cause, cause like everybody, he is subject to time and age and everything. It's not happening yet. He's still playing at a very high level, but where's your, Where's your trajectory? Um, and then I look at a player like Melinkovic Savage, and I think to myself, at time still such a commanding player. I thought this was not one of his better games. I think he's had better games, much better games, in this recently. But has it has it taken a step forward in all of these last sort of few years? Alatii, and that you know counts under in Zaggy as well. Like I feel like he he might have peaked a couple of seasons ago, maybe even three seasons ago, actually, and and. Yeah. But, I, but I certainly don't feel like under Sally this season, there's been some great revelation of, of milinkovic savage some great, oh, now we're playing Sarri ball and I, I'm finding some untapped resource that I didn't know about before. And it it just feels like a lot of that all through the side, right? Felipe Anderson obviously went away, has come back. He still does some good things, but do I think that he's a, a cornerstone you're going to build this team on? No. Um, where where are where are the, the the cornerstones of this next great Lazio team? Luis Alberto for me definitely is is missing Simone and Zaghi is not um playing at the levels he has before. So I I don't think it's a disaster, this Lazio team, but I, I do feel like it's it's drifting a bit at the moment and it's it's such a common conversation yeah. that we have. Like everywhere Sally goes, there's always this conversation of, oh, he needs time. You've got to let him get his ideas in and maybe, maybe next season, if he's still there, it will look different. But I I don't have that sense at the moment. It doesn't feel like it's coalescing into something. If anything, it feels like it's just gradually drifting away from something that was really, really good for several seasons into something that's, I don't know, just fine, uh, but not not something that's a team that's going to keep pushing on and, and pushing for Champions League places.
0: Obviously, you know, I I think one club that's done it right in terms of who they've picked as their coach to continue their approach and their style of football is Napoli. And uh, I think, uh, honestly, Spalletti has done such a tremendous job. Obviously, his team, having Osterman, having Ingrisa, having that beautiful spine in place has really helped. But despite their many absences, they got a point against Juventus. They defeated Sampdoria with a fabulous performance from Petagna, and they are really riding the wave of all these absences and, and doing very well for themselves. But we have to talk about Lorenzo Insignia. Thirty minutes into the match against Sampdoria, he was taken off, and afterwards uh, there was a question to Spalletti about how he feels having lose. You know, being okay. Let's let's be clear. Lorenzo Insignia has agreed to join Toronto in the summer. So he's going to stay at Napoli till the end of the season, but they won't renew his contract unless he takes a pay cut. So he's decided to move to Toronto, start a new adventure with them in the MLS. And it's an exciting move for him and his family. But obviously it's been a huge talking point in Italy and across the world as to his decision to, to really go to the MLS. Is he too young? what happened from an ambitious point of view? Spalletti said that he's really glad to have him till the end of the season. He is the captain of Napoli. He is so important as a leader and as as a chief creator, if you like, um a beautiful player on the ball. Obviously, I've always had question marks about him, generally speaking. but I want to speak to you, Nikki, about what you think of his decision to join to join Toronto. I guess so early in his career,
1: perhaps. Yeah. So you and I obviously have spoken about this. Um, uh, I guess off air, and, and you know how I, how I um, feel about it. But I, I guess this podcasts haven't heard me talk about it. And I, <laughs> you know, as you know me I, I sort of have quite a sort of, I don't know what to sort of describe it as. Like a, I suppose a sort of, I guess a a, a life, a person centered view on this, which is that I, I think we we treat footballers so much of the time almost as if they're like robots who should constantly be driven by the things that we perceive as what they should be doing, right? So they should be purely motivated by being number one and every footballer should have exactly the same mindset and that should be all that they're focused on. And the reality is that they don't. Um, Footballers are all individuals. They're all people. They've all got their own life stories going on. There's Several, plenty, in fact, of footballers playing at the highest level who literally don't even like football. I think Benoit assou <laughs> spoke about that when he said Tottenham he doesn't like football. Now Insigne is not that. Insigne loves football, but I, I think, obviously, we're, you know, we're waiting for him to give his explanation, if there's some point which I'm sure will happen, he'll give an interview and he'll give a good conversation about it. But what I think is that I can, I can really understand if you were born in a city. You grew up in that city. You spent almost your entire life in one city. And that city happens to be one of the most intense football cities in Europe. One of the most, one of the places where where if you are successful, you're the most scrutinized. You're the most sort of attention paid to you. I think Gonzalo Higuain talked about it. You know, even living as a a footballer with means and and being quite detached from from, uh, lots of things, like he could be in his own private home and, and going straight out onto the water, even like going out into the, the uh, into the, the, the Gulf of Naples. And out of nowhere, there'd be like boats of people being like, hey, Gonzalo, like, you know, talking to him. You really do have a certain lifestyle that is particular. Now, look, I'm not getting my little violin out and asking anyone to feel sorry for people either, because this is a huge privilege to be a footballer, to have that success, to have that opportunity. But I'm, I'm just trying to sort of put this position that I have that Footballers are also people, and he's been there all that time. I think you could certainly make a case that Insigne could look around at what he has in Naples and say, "Am I going to win more than I already have here?" He's won the Coppa Italia. He's finished as a Serie A runner-up a couple of times. This season, maybe it looked for a while like they could win the league. Maybe they still could, but he's probably not going to win the league in, in Naples. It's it's a very hard thing to do there, and and understand. At least from the outside, I can understand how you might want to change. Now, I can look at that as well and say, yeah, but don't you want to go somewhere where you could win something? He's good enough. He's good enough to go to a team, whether it's in Serie or another place in Europe and, and win things. He's good enough to be wanted by the sorts of teams that that want those things. Um, But he's also at an age where...
0: Is he though? Well, Is he though?
1: But, all right, we'll come back like, to that. Let me I just, let just let me finish the thought. Let me finish okay. the thought and then, and then we'll come okay. back to that. Um, but he's also at an age 30 where if you want to make the really big lucrative move, this is now it. No one's going to offer him this contract in four or five years time. And someone has offered him a lot of money, a huge amount of money to go and play in Toronto. But I actually think it's not just the money meaning. I think this is the bit which I always want to focus on. Like, yeah, the money's there. Of course it's there. It's a foundation stone without the money. None of this happens. But I also just understand as someone who myself in 2012 left my full-time position at The Guardian to go freelance so that I could go and live in America for a couple of years, because I had an opportunity to do that living with an ex. I thought it's an adventure. Let's go do it. I think sometimes that adventure in life we deny to athletes because they're athletes and they're not allowed to do these things. What if, as well as the money, which of course, again, I will say is a foundation stone of all of this. What if Lorenzo Insignia thinks, wow, Toronto, I've heard it's this fun city and my family could grow up there and we'd have less of that media attention that my kids have to put up with where we are now. I think that's real. I think that's a real thing that we don't think about. And that's my opinion on this transfer. But also, I know you want to to question whether or not the big clubs in Europe actually would want him or not.
0: I mean, if there's ever a reason to say you're the light and I'm the darkness, it's very much (laughs) based on this conversation, right? Um, (laughs) I mean, like, I mean, talk about taking the positive side of all these things, you know, and it's true. There's nothing I can disagree with. I mean, I, I mean, off air, obviously, Nikki and I are friends. And there have been times when we've discussed like, you know, when you're a journalist, you got to, like it's a constant hustle if you're a freelance, you know, like where you can mm-hmm. join, are you going to be part of ESPN, are you going to accept this movie, are you going to move to CBS, are you going to, it's a constant hustle. And there just comes a time when you think, I want to have a nice balance, I don't always want to be saying yes to like a thousand jobs, which means I'm working nonstop for a whole week and, and actually I want to enjoy my life as well, you know, and, and if that means that I don't make as much money, then so be it, you know. And it's, and Nikki has a great point in saying, why should we deny that to other people? And his option is make more money and do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and have an adventure with your family. Um, You know, this, this poor boy that's never left Napoli. And like, you know, I mean, let's, let's all cry. I so
1: again. I'm not getting the violin out for him. Like a lot of people would, would kill for his lifestyle. I'm not getting the violin out for him. I'm it's just normal. saying that there's, you know, there's more to life than one place always.
0: Now here's that part, but I don't, I mean, obviously, I'm sure that our listeners are not Grey's Anatomy fans necessarily, but I'm going to refer to something in which a brain surgeon's wife, he was talking to his wife, and he said to her, would you disrespect me if I just gave it all up and just wanted to enjoy the outdoors and live my life and not always be the man that's doing all these surgeries, that's saving everyone, and just save myself for a bit. And She looked at him and she said, I would greatly disrespect you. And I remember thinking that that was such a strong line, you know, like as in your wife is being like, unless you do this, you have yeah. none of my respect, you know? And I thought, wow, that's strong. And she said, because you have such a privilege, you have something mm-hmm. that everything and everyone in the world wants to have, this ability to save lives, this ability to, to change and, and rescue people who have, you know, damaged brains or whatever it is. Obviously, Insigne is not saving lives. He's entertaining many, but he's not saving lives. But he is privileged. But
1: football's important. Football matters to a lot of people. Yes. It, does, it does affect people's lives. Exactly. I understand that.
0: Yeah. He is privileged in the sense that he has a talent that so many of us wish we had. And I think that is perhaps the when fans say to themselves, like, you know, yes, they want these guys to be professional. They want these guys to be at it and, and egotistical and desperate for the victory. and because you are so lucky to have this special talent, especially in senior, because unlike your, I don't know, Antonio Contes or even Ronaldo, when he speaks, he says he works so hard for it. But Insinia is naturally gifted. He is a player where he has been touched by the gods. And you do feel there's a part of you that just thinks, it's a real shame that that didn't coincide necessarily with a stronger desire to prove yourself on the bigger stages in the biggest finals for the biggest clubs. And this goes down and always boils down to the point where I've never believed in Napoli's chances because their captain is somebody who doesn't believe in their chances. And he has every right to choose his happiness. And I will never begrudge any player to do that. You want to move to Toronto, you want to have one last huge paycheck when Napoli wants to pay you less? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I also want to be paid around 11 million, frankly speaking, to like, (laughs) you know, be a leader in a different... I'm, you, you, should, you should prioritize your family's wealth, their happiness and whatever it should be. But there is a part of us that you also have to understand that we wish we had your talents and we wish we were capable of being the leader of Napoli, of taking an opportunity to play with Real Madrid or Barcelona or Liverpool or Manchester City. I think now he's too old to get those contracts. So I see why Toronto makes sense. I don't think anymore he's at a level where Liverpool will be looking. Liverpool, or oh, Manchester City, I'm worried that Kane is too old for these huge opportunities anymore. Because now it's constantly younger and younger. We're seeing Jude Bellingham, we're seeing, you know, Kylian Mbappe. I mean, in a second, Pietro Pellegri is too old for anything in football anymore. You know, like, football's changed. And, and Insigne is 30, and, and for me, he's never shown on a mentality level to be the guy that makes the difference. When Napoli really need a leader to make the difference, he is beautiful on the ball. But there is that lack of grinta, and you see that in this decision to move to Toronto. I think it's detrimental also for the national team, because I cannot help but think that Mancini or whomever replaces him in the future might forget you. When Sebastian Domingo chose to go to Toronto, he wasn't being played you are still in senior you are still a euro 2020 winner you may not move to liverpool or manchester city but there is an opportunity for you to still make the difference and be the leader that takes the club and builds it further he doesn't want that he hasn't been given that opportunity he doesn't want to hustle for that i get it but you also have to be open to the fact that we will criticize you because we are jealous of you and we <laughs> wish we had your 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 talents on the ball and perhaps we might have I don't know, Won something with
1: it. I love having these conversations with you, Mina, because I think you expressed a <laughs> perspective that's different to mine that I still was nodding along with and thinking, God, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And I, I, I yeah, you, you know, you bring me part of the way to your, to your way of thinking as well. So you're awesome. Oh, that's why we're friends. <laughs> did I know. Do you know one of the other things I did think about is I, I wonder, and again, so much of this is speculation until he talks about it, right? But I did wonder to myself, how much winning the Euros this summer maybe made him feel more open to like this because now he has won something really big. It wasn't in club football, but he's won something that's really genuinely very few footballers get to win in their career. And so he can walk away if he needs to saying, I'm a European champion. You can't take that away from me, but definitely a fascinating one. Definitely something that as an Italian Hurts me because I feel like it's detrimental to Italy's World Cup chances. Having said that, we've got to qualify first, Mina, and that's not looking as comfortable as it should. So who knows? Maybe there'll be no World Cup for us to worry about um, by the time he's over there. So yeah, fingers crossed. But
0: no, I mean, fingers crossed, we always have something to worry about because I cannot imagine another World Cup without Italy. I mean, that's basically a decade of no Italy in the World Cup, right? But Impressive from Napoli um, for, for them to have gotten four points at the start of 2022. Were you, are you more impressed with Napoli or are you more impressed with Milan? Because, you know, Milan have just come out roaring again, you know. The beautiful victory over Roma and then managed to just put Venezia aside, you know, scored in the first two minutes with Zlatan Ibrahimovic. N- you know, no Benetsia, no Kessia. We've discussed this, no Calabria, no Pretty much anyone. Yeah. But Leao is back. It's fabulous to watch. And Milan just look like they have just such a strong identity that when sometimes they play this way you think they're unstoppable and somewhere along the lines the wheels come off and you think, wait, what just happened here? I can't figure them out sometimes. Yeah, well, uh,
1: between the two, it's Milan, Milan, Milan. Me, uh, Mina. I think they're the only team left that that could um Push Inter to the end of the season. I very much expect Inter to win the league at this point. But uh, if if it wasn't Inter, I would be shocked if it was anyone other than Milan. Put it that way. I, I really don't. I don't have um, faith in in anyone else, partly because just where things are in the table as well. But I, I'm i pretty sure I said it on this podcast towards the end of last year. I know I was saying it in general towards the end of last year. Uh, to me, Leal has been. Such a big loss for this team when he was out because of just how he obliges opposition teams to play. Because when Leao is on the pitch with that pace, especially because Brahim Diaz, I think went off the boil a bit towards the end of last year as well. But when Leao is on the pitch with such direct running, the way he plays, I, I feel like your opponents have two options. There's option one is sit deeper which suits Milan because then they can bring their whole center of gravity up the pitch and, and play in a different way. Or you have to dice with footballing death by sticking with your higher line and, and risking Leal going in behind you, which is, as I think I I, I said before, like it's ex- what happened with, with Liverpool at Anfield, Liverpool at Anfield who are dominating Milan, but then forgot to think about how fast this Milan team can be. And I think when there's been a period when he was out and Ibrahimović was on the pitch and sure, Ibrahimović was was scoring goals, but the whole center of gravity of this Milan team moved deeper because you no longer had layout scaring opponents backwards. And he's come back and actually he and Ibrahimović have combined immediately. They did it in the Roma game They when he came off the bench. They did it in the first minute or first two minutes of the Venezia game. Actually, the two of them can give each other so much because they're so different. And I, I just think Leao has quietly become really, really fundamental to Purely Milan. And I'm excited that he's back. And I, it's still look, it's still a different, a different difficult period to start this year with the Cup of Nations and, and missing some important players. But if they can get through it and still be touching distance to winter, I think we might still have a title race that goes at least to near the end, whether or not it will go all the way down to the wire, who knows, it's a long way to go still. But I, I think uh, if those things can come together, this Milan team still has that potential in it for me.
0: I mean, when you're comparing them to Inter, you really haven't had to suffer with very many absences, right? I mean, everyone was talking about Chalunoglu not being available and that was like their biggest absence. Um, but otherwise, when I Milan have just dealt with so much over the season and last season as well. I wonder how they would fare if it was just all their players available to them throughout the season with only minor, small absences, you know? And then I, I would love to see what they can do. But let me just get some big things out of the way in the sense that Venezia were the 80th team that Zlatan Ibrahimović has scored against in the top five leagues. And for the second time in his career, he has now scored in six consecutive away games. I mean, wow. Secondly, I am a little bit worried about Venezia. Um, This was a team that I really felt like started to find their rhythm and they started to be very interesting. If you remember the reverse fixture, it took ages before Milan finally penetrated through because Venezia may not be a, a, a team that scores a lot of goals to get the Roman game a second, but they are not that team, but they are defensively solid and they do usually have a good unit. But the wheels have come off entirely. And now it's Mm -hmm. been five defeats and two draws in their last seven games. So I don't know what's going there, but things need to change. And I thought it was interesting that Zenetti said it's difficult when you have a team with so many different nationalities. And we're trying to combine all all of that and put it into one team with one identity. Mm -hmm. So I hope they're not a team that we just admire, but that eventually gets demoted. But speaking of them, a new highlighted layout, and I think that he is... He is such a tremendous player. I did have a problem with his consistency, so I hope he manages to keep that up. But another player I really want to focus on as well is Sandro Tonali because, I mean, I know that we we might have lost Keiser. I mean, we have lost Keiser and we might lose the senior as well going forward for the national team, but Sandro Tonali is just fabulous. I mean, the different roles, how he adapts his game, he can be in a more you know, offense, like attacking player, like he was against Roma. Concerned more with defense, like he was against uh, Venezia. He's just, he's just everything right now. And for a midfield in which, like last year, was so dependent on that understanding between Venezia and Kessie, and Tonani was sort of this bit player that never looked like he could make, like struggled to make that step up from Brescia to Milan. And to now be this player that I think, frankly speaking, is better than Vanessa and Kessie, actually, even the season. He's just everything. And there's very little, I don't even know when people try to compare him as he Gattuso to He's everyone. He really is everyone. And I just, um, I can't, I want him to be a staple in the Italian national team. And I love that he's carved out a place for himself in Milan in which he's just getting all the plaudits from the likes of Maldini and obviously Stefano Pioli because he he really is the man that's making the difference in the middle.
1: Yeah, he's been he's been brilliant. I think, look, Milan, they don't have the depth of Inter. Inter have the, the, the real, real deep squad, but I think it's been a real sort of triumphant couple of games for, uh, Tanali, obviously, I think also look two of the sort of more, um, disregarded players, Gabian and Kalula, who have given us a couple of good performances at center back. Uh, Bakayoko has come in and done his job. It, they're showing resources, um, above and beyond. I think it's great that Mike Magnan is, of course, there as well and back in and healthy in goal, but, um, long way to go, long way to go. But I, I feel a lot better about this Milan team than I do about any team except Inter, frankly. So that's, uh, that's where I am on Milan, really.
0: Well, long may there be an interesting um, title challenge and the race for top four is just getting more and more exciting. Obviously, Torino are taking on Fiorentina today. We saw Roma Juventus yesterday. There are other teams that will continue to strike fear in our hearts. Empoli didn't manage it against Sassuolo, but at least we're happy that Raspadori is scoring. That should help for the national team as well. Anything you want to mention extra?
1: It's not just Raspadori. It's all the Italians up front for Sassuolo. <laughs> it's what so it's going to come down to in the end in that playoff. We're just going to need to field Scamacca, Raspadori and Berardi and say, here we go. It used to be Juve Italia. That's how they used to, to make yeah. that abridged version. It's going to be italia I don't know. Italuolo. Something like that. Italuolo. Yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> um, yeah, look, a, a, a nice 5-1 win over an Empoli team who... Pretty good, Empoli. So that was a a really impressive win for them. Really impressive 6-2 win for Atlanta as well. Crazy start to the new year, Mina. There's so much to say that we could be here probably for another few hours, except we can't because we have both got plenty more on our plate, but there's good news is we'll be keep on coming back every week, right? So we could keep talking about these things as the 2022
0: goes on. Yes, absolutely. Um, Usually I would have a limerick in place, but because we've had so much to talk about, I will save it for next week. Um, also, can you actually submit nice stuff to, for us to make a limerick out of? You know, <laughs> we miss your wonderful comments. We've had some interesting uh, emails. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like they're just for us, so I don't want to like reveal them on, on, on the limerick. But if you do want a limerick to be created, then do send us some interesting stuff so I can be inspired to write about it but that's all we have time for this week we will of course be back on friday with a chronicles q a mailbag show join our patreon and become a chronicles to foresee fan at patreon.com forward slash study chronicles and if you do you get access to exclusive podcasts and I'm going to say eventually, because not just quite yet. But also, do get your questions in on Twitter at SeriaCronPod with the hashtag Q and a You can find us on Twitter at Nikki Bandini, at Mina Rizuki. And please subscribe to the Seria Chronicles YouTube channels for clips of the show. Leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been wonderful to come back in 2022 and start chatting football again. Thank you, Nikki. Did you enjoy yourself? Oh, it was so much fun.
1: I can't wait to see. I'm going to see you tomorrow for Sky Sports News again. So I'm enjoying the start of 2022 for how much Mina Rizuki time it has in it.
0: Well, don't worry. We'll take over one more channel as well just to (laughs) to make sure that you're constantly getting us. You know, this is where the hustle comes in. (laughs) But uh, thank you to everyone who joins us and back on Friday. So make sure you tune in. Ciao for now.
1: Beratti l'ha visto, eccolo servito. Proviamo a farci vedere con Immobile che è andato sulla traccia opposta. Ecco per pallone per Immobile, posizione regolare. Ha tenuto la porte, ci Chiesa chiesto in area di rigore. Chiesa! 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 La chiesa di nuovo a centro del villaggio. Ancora a centro del villaggio, nella stessa volta. Sport Social Podcast Network.